Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm her currently half-vaxxed co-host, <laughs> Kathleen Smith, aka Kiki Planet. And today we have with us two guests. We're going to talk about uh, feminist perspectives. And from the University of Calgary, we have Dr. Lisa Young, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science. Welcome, Lisa. Happy to be here. And we also have Lisa Kirby, CEO of Blackbird Strategies in Ottawa, Ontario. Welcome, Lisa. Well, thanks for having me, even though I'm not from Alberta. Well, but. see, we, we already figured it out. Kathleen and I are the women of AB Poly. Yes. So so we can have you anyone know, we, we, we want. That's right. We can we can do this. We just can do right. whatever the hell we want every yeah, time. Well, shouldn't we always? Always. We should. <laughs> The, the impetus, did everyone read the article that I sent along? I did. By Ginny Roth. I did. Um, called A Conservative Feminism Would Go Beyond the Labor Force. I raged a little, Deirdre. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. I raged. Just a- <laughs> there, there were moments of mm, maybe, oh, well, that's problematic. And oh, then yeah. finally, what in the actual hell is this? Yeah. This, so, so this article... Um, because it, it, it was a, a conservative perspective of feminism, but there's definitely, I had some issues with the language and, and that's my thing. Anyways, I pick out language. I see where the problems are. There were some in here that just, that, that caused me some issues. And so I guess let's just start with, um, maybe, maybe a, maybe a bit of a review from everyone, what you thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll take the first step. I understand what Ginny is, is trying to say, but honestly, when I first read it, all I had in my brain was Stephen Harper, Mm. which is something that shouldn't be in my brain ever. (laughs) But especially when talking about feminism. Right. But it took me it took me back to when he um, formed government after Paul Martin, because Paul Martin, if you recall, had promised universal child care. And then Harper came in with the uh, universal child care benefit, which was really more of a I'll give you a hundred bucks a month for each child if you (laughs) reelect, if you elect me. But that's what it kind of felt like. It felt like almost that they're trying to lay ground, like lay track for not doing a universal daycare plan like the liberals have put forward, but trying to do something else, which isn't about childcare at all. No. And my, my impression from it too, was that they're still trying to, it's a bit more subtle uh, in that piece, it's a it's a bit more under the cover, but they're still trying to push this idea of well, women don't really want to work. I, there there was a lot of problematic language in there that suggested every woman wants to stay at home with her babies, and beyond that, every woman wants to have babies, and many which was many. <laughs> Yeah, and that was... I that, sure as hell didn't. No. And it was enough. I have a, a lot of friends who don't want children for reasons that even go beyond the financial mm-hmm. aspect of it. They're, 
they're married to their careers, which is great, or they're married to politics, which is great, or they don't want to bring children into a world that they see as not being able to provide for those (laughs) kids, that their lives may not be as good as their grandparents' lives were. So my problems with the article were, I, I expect most of the rhetoric that's in there when we're talking about conservative feminism, but mm-hmm. my problem with it was mainly that it painted us all as wanting to have children yeah. and that the only thing that's standing in our way is a tax credit we're not getting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the I- answer to all problems, isn't it? Tax credit. Tax credit. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa. (laughs) No problem. I was just going to say that, you know, one thing that really struck me when I read the article, it reminded me so much of what has passed as as, has been passed off as childcare policy here in Alberta, right? So money comes from the federal government and, you know, the, the conservatives in Alberta, when they've had a chance to do this, have turned it into, you know, through using the language of choice, what we've ended up with is not that much going to the kinds of daycare centers that, you know, most of us would be uh, hoping to have uh, supported, but instead, you know, payments to parents to stay home, payments that you can use to have grandma help uh, with with, uh, childcare and so on. And so, you know, what gets hidden under choice is really just making sure that childcare is very much a private concern, not a public concern, right? Okay. So better that you, you know, pay the neighbor to pay, look after your kids than you take them to this, you know, regulated space that the government is involved in. Better yet, stay home with them or get your mother to look after them because it's always going to be your mother. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and all of that, you know, if we go back to this whole question of feminism that we were going to talk about today, it's all about keeping women in that private space, right? Yes, absolutely it is. You know, it's, you start unpacking it and that's really what we end up with. Yeah, and I mean, I, I go back to the same thing I always go back to. I'm I'm really tired of parties that want to regulate my reproductive rights and restrict my reproductive rights and uh, force women to give birth and then tell us they're not going to give us any help after the fact, which is always, you know, kind of a, a bone I have to pick with conservative parties. Well, and I remember in, so in 2007, I decided I was going back to school. I knew what I was going to do this time. And one of the things that I started paying attention to, I think I, I think I got a subscription to the National Post and, because every Wednesday they did like this, it was like this legal um, spread where they were talking about how the legal profession was changing and, you know, all of these good things were happening, work-life balance, all of these things. And, and that was, that was my original plan. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so that was 2007. So by the time that I got around to it, um, but, but these were things that were coming up in on, in Ontario specifically is that, uh, childcare was completely unaffordable for people mm. to have more than two children. Uh, my cousin moved there many years ago. She quit when she got pregnant with her third because she said that it's ridiculous. Why would like why would we use my income and possibly a little of her husband's as well 
to pay childcare. And so she went, so she left her job. And like, I, I talked to a lot of people. I did my due diligence on a lot of these things. And, oh, yeah, my mom went back to school. My mom did that. And, okay, so, you know, this is totally possible Till I got pregnant with my fourth child going into school. And by the time that I was ready to graduate, I was like, why would I want to work my ass off for the next, like, this many years? I mean, my youngest was three <laughs> at the time. And I'm like, why would I do this for another couple of years to then also move into doing this, like working my ass off again and never seeing my kids. I was, I, I looked at all of this and, you know, the, the, we can have it all. But at the same time, what I was finding is that even though I'd read all of these fantastic articles about how the legal profession was changing, in my one of my last year classes, they were like, look at, you know, look at your profession that you want to go into, do some research on it. And everything I looked at said 10 years afterwards, women are no longer actually practicing. Yeah. And I was like, what did I do? <laughs> this is the thing is that there are balances, there are, there are trade offs, you know, that that we end up making. And Yes, sure, it's unfair. And yes, sure, you know, we all make choices. But there are choices that don't seem like choices. Right? I, and that was, that's one. I think you brought up something um, that really applies, especially in Alberta. I don't, I'm not familiar with daycare programs in the rest of the provinces, because I've only ever had to use it here. But uh, one of the things that's coming out of our current government is they don't need Trudeau's $10 daycare because Alberta has one of the best subsidy programs in the country. What, what they're not telling and what the women who listen to our podcast should know is that that subsidy is based on your income and And, spouses. Right. And so when I was on my own with uh, three young boys and working two jobs and had no choice but to use daycare and needed subsidy, if I got a $2 an hour raise, my daycare shot up 600 bucks a month. So it's the, our government can say to us, you know, we already have this great subsidy program, but we don't. We have a a daycare program in Alberta that will actually punish women and specifically single parents. If you're a single parent in this province who needs daycare, you're going to get screwed over by the subsidy program because every time you make a bit more, every time you work harder to get a raise, to put more food on the table, the government's going to claw it back from you. Mm -hmm. It's they treat uh, daycare subsidy in this province the same way they would treat social assistance if you're on social assistance and you work a few hours and you make some money we're hauling money back if you're on unemployment and you work a few hours we're taking money away from your benefits that's how they treat daycare in this province and that's why it's not working Mm -hmm. so i i've found a lot of women have two choices they're either fighting with subsidy and trying to work two jobs. And one of those jobs is just to pay for the damn daycare Mm -hmm. or they're in a position where as a family, 
spouses have to decide if it's even worth it. If, if we're paying $900 to, you know, $1,200 a month for the daycare or the out of school care, even, and you're making 1800, 2000 at this job, what is the point? Why, why are you working it? And that is what concerns me is that by not having daycare, we really are keeping women out of the job force. Well, that's it. That's exactly it. So back in the back in the day, so you know, 22, 23, 24 years ago, when I decided to go get an education, because uh, at that point, I was a welfare mom with two little kids. And we were living on I think $963 a month. And I decided to go get a university education. And, you know, the number of conservatives who have said to me, well, how can you be a be a liberal? You, you're you should be a conservative. You pulled yourself up by the bootstraps, and it's like let me explain something to you. So um, my government subsidizes my my education. Um, my provincial government, which in BC at that time was a new democratic government, they paid for my daycare. Mm. I lived in cooperative housing, so I had subsidies on my housing costs. Um, and yeah, I worked my ass off being a single mom with your youngest in diapers, trying to do a four-year degree program while being the vice president of your student union, because you need that extra 500 bucks it pays every month Debate is club. exhausting, right? Is exhausting. And to think that the attitude then is, is therefore uh, I should be a conservative without them having that comprehension that it was the state that ultimately allowed me to achieve that education. And when I, when you look at the article and you read some of the language, like I'm all for choice. Like mm-hmm. for me, choice is everything, but this doesn't feel like choice. It feels like very definitely a steering toward a traditional family unit. It and is. that's what I don't like. And, you know, in the article, she mentions you know, that we have this very generous parental leave benefit. I mean, just five years ago, we called it mat leave. It's not mat leave anymore because men are taking the options to stay home with their kids because we're finally giving these millennial young men their own choice to stay home. And and with my grandson who has some medical issues and can't attend daycare, my daughter was the breadwinner and my son-in-law stayed home with the baby. And that's the kind of choices we need to make sure that families can make. And that means making sure we have those parental leave benefits, that we have a daycare subsidy. And to your point, Kathleen, yeah, like when you're on a subsidized daycare system, you you secretly really want to raise, but then you don't want to raise because it's just going to screw you on the other end. Yeah, it actually sets you further back. Mm-hmm. I, I got to a point where I would turn down small raises because the raise was going to cost me more than it would benefit me. It, it would end up with, you know, double that amount, amount at least taken off my daycare assistance every month. And when we're and it, it's, I, I know there's more options for men now. This burden still falls on women. Yes. Disproportionately. Like yeah. like everything yeah. else that happens in the home, this burden falls on <laughs> women. And when we're not providing a, a uniform, universal solution to the problem across the country, we're leaving the decision 
the decision up to ideologues, regardless of which party it is. We're leaving these decisions up to ideologues who all too often are not going to think about what is best for us, for our children, for our families. They're going to think about what's best for their reelection. And that's, I, I think that's why I, I have such respect for Justin Trudeau saying, we're just going to do this. And then not only saying we're going to do this, but then saying to my premier, premier, and we're, we're putting requirements on it. <laughs> we're not just <laughs> handing it over to you, JJ. Strings attached. We know you won't do what you should do with it. So yes, there's strings attached. And by saying that publicly, he did something that was very politically smart that really excited me. The pressure's on Kenny now because everyone knows we could have this. We could have this nice thing. And if we don't have that, it's because of our premier, which is, I mean, I, I love the daycare, even though I don't need it anymore. I love the daycare, <laughs> but I love how politically smart he was in the way he did it. Because, you know, our, our Justin, he gets, he gets, called not so bright a lot of times and people pick on him for being pretty. And I'm like, that was not a pretty boy decision. That was a solid politically brilliant move because he offered us some candy. And the only person who's going to make sure we don't get it is our own premier smart. It kind of made up for that miserable India trip. He and his family took a number of years ago, I think. (laughs) I had to try to defend that on TV. That was, that was hard. But he does try so hard. I mean, sometimes I want to, you know, sit him down and have a chat with him like I would one of my sons. I think it's great that you're so enthusiastic, but sometimes we have to put adulting before fun. I get full credit to be a freelance for this. (laughs) Yes, me as well. Uh, Me as well. I think that's one of the things that we need to acknowledge as well. You know, the fact that it's one thing to say you're a feminist. It's it's another thing to disrupt a system to the extent where there's actual change and because everyone's going to come after me on Twitter. I'm just going to put this disclaimer um, that no, I don't think Justin Trudeau has done everything right, but he hasn't done everything wrong. And one of the things that he did right was in 2015, having a gender balanced uh, cabinet because it had never been done before. And we are not going to get social change that positively affects women until someone usually men, because they're the ones who are currently holding power, make room for us. And that was what he did. And then when he made Chrystia Freeland the finance minister, our first female finance minister delivering the first finance budget from a woman, that for me was a moment. It was really a moment. I mean, the only thing better could have been perhaps that she was a black or indigenous woman. That would have been great because we need more of those in politics too. But you need to make bold moves because unless you're willing to disrupt the system, nothing is going to change. And I don't know why we are so surprised 
that institutions like the RCMP, the military, our government institutions, which were all built by and for white men, why we are still so surprised when we hear how they don't benefit women or people of color. Yes. I howl about this constantly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say it. It's very hard to get people to understand that we all exist within a system that was built by and exclusively to the benefit of white straight men, period. They built it to benefit themselves. Now, along the way, there's been some adjustments. And this daycare thing, this is an, adjudge, uh, an adjustment. Having uh, gender, gender parity in a cabinet, that's an adjustment. But they're all just adjustments. And at its core, our current system is still exclusively for white men. They just let us walk in the door every now and then. They just let us take a seat every now and then. And they pick which ones of us they let in. That's right. They still do that too. So if Trudeau's legacy, if 10, 15 years from now, we're looking back on Trudeau's legacy, I hope that his legacy you know, isn't the India trip, but it's that (laughs) by ensuring there were more voices at the table outside of that, that core group that built and benefits from the system, the system changed for the better. I'm hoping that's what we look forward to. Lisa, does that happen? Do we actually get change? (laughs) Well, that's a big question. You know, I, I, I think we can, we do, it, you know, it, we always look to Scandinavia, which is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they did move, you know, far ahead of us on uh, quotas, gender equality in their legislatures, in their cabinet. It's normalized uh, the idea of having, you know, a woman who's the finance minister, a woman who's the you know, responsible for the military, right? So those kinds of things, I think, do change slowly over time. But I think what we're seeing, you know, in in Canada, in the US, in the UK right now, especially, is uh, the, the powerful backlash against it. When we think about the kinds of abuse that's heaped on women in politics, women in, in positions of power, it has gotten worse and mm-hmm. you know it it's the the price the cost of of that kind of change and it can actually you know roll things back right it can cause women to say i'm out it can you know we're, we really are in a moment where we're fighting over whether this kind of change is going to get entrenched or it's just going to get rolled back yeah and you know we've kathleen and i have talked about this a couple of times i think i think publicly <laughs> but like I, I grew up with, my mother was a, was a heavy duty partsman. Um, so she worked in, you know, typically very male centric environments. Like I, I realized that, you know, there was a point in time where, when my grandmother couldn't vote. Um, <laughs> like I, I knew all of this and yet when I was growing up, I kind of felt like, okay, so we've done this. So, you know, mom can have this job and, and things like that. And, and I definitely looked at that situation and said, 
but I don't, I don't want to do, I don't want to be in a male centric um, profession. I, I don't want to do that. I didn't really consider myself a feminist and we've only been, we've only been doing the podcast for we're on six months now. We are, we're on six months. Yay. And everything has changed the way that I am viewing things. Like I, I look back on, on how many years I spent trying to work within that system and within that structure and how I did it and how it just played to like, and I, I see it now. And as I said, so we're coming into all of these conversations that we continue to have. And I'm realizing that it wasn't finished you know, that I basically looked at the, I looked at the structure too. And I said, "Mm, yeah, no, I'm not going to fight that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's honestly something that you have to perpetuate with Mm -hmm. every generation because, because we didn't reach that parity. We didn't reach equality. We didn't reach equity. Yeah. We're not even a generation removed yet from women not being able to own property on their own. That's right. We're not a generation yeah. removed yet from women having to have co-signers for a mortgage. Or to get permission from her husband to have an abortion. Yes. We're, we're not a generation removed from that yet. So when, when the answer from a lot of people on the other side of the aisle to uh, the feminist movement, to us still fighting for gender equality and, and equity is, it, it doesn't matter anymore. Sexism, sexism isn't as bad as it used to be. We're, we're only a generation away. And so we've got a long ways to go forward, a lot of work to do. And I'm, I hope that uh, the daycare plan is a major stepping stone for women. It's not, none of us here are going to directly benefit from it. Right? Yeah. You know? I, I, hope, I hope not. Yeah. Well. I think that could still happen for me. This I'm factory's closed because yeah. the eggs are past their best before date. Yeah. Nothing I happening here. I'm so happy not to have to worry about pregnancy in my life. No, it's, it's fantastic. But it, it will benefit my daughters-in-law. Yes. It'll yeah. benefit my grandchildren. It'll benefit yeah. my daughter, right? I'm I'm so excited about it because I see the improvement it will make, not just for women, but for families in whatever yeah. form they take. You know, there's there's a lot of other factors that the article we've been discussing didn't talk about because that article and it's problematic because this is what conservatives do. But that article really does focus on the traditional, and we're talking 1950s, leave it to beaver kind of family. It's a man and a woman. The moral foundations of policy. Yeah, it's a a lot of melted vanilla ice cream. And what about gay couples? What about LGBTQ2 couples who are raising kids? And I think think she actually did say whatever that however whatever that looks like <laughs> oh nuclear or otherwise new yeah yes <laughs> so brave i guess the or otherwise that's brave language yeah but it, yeah. it doesn't even take into account um that kind of family unit where you know maybe maybe there's two dads 
Maybe they both like their careers and they want to keep going to work. Maybe there's two moms. It doesn't even consider any sort of dynamic outside of other than women want to have kids. The conservative idea of traditional marriage. Another thing that I I really noticed in the article was uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we need to increase the birth rate. And so if you have daycare, that's somehow going to work in the other direction. Now, you know, so there's all kinds of issues here, right? First of all, there's the whole, we need to think about the birth rate and not just labor force participation. We can just set that aside for, for a moment. But if we look at the analyses that have been done of the Quebec model, which is, and this is absolutely modeled on on the Quebec uh, daycare model, what they found is that in fact it has increased women's labor force participation, and it has modestly increased the birth rate because people feel that they can afford to have children. So, you know, even there, the, the facts weren't straight. Yeah, and it didn't make sense. The argument was even nonsensical. I, I, why, why would women not have more children if they can afford to have children? Especially when in the beginning of the article, the, the author makes it clear that we're not having enough children because the cost is prohibitive. But her answer to that seemed to be solely, well, just stay home and take a tax credit. And everyone should get this tax credit, which kind of I don't know oh it's hard for me to read yeah it's hard for me to the income splitting part too yeah it's hard for me to read something from conservatives who absolutely hate the idea of a universal basic income because not everyone needs it but then say well everyone should get a tax credit Instead and, and then be allowed daycare. to split their income. I just, it's that it kind <laughs> well, of mess. Do you, remember, do you remember back in the day when Harper put in that tax credit for sports and arts? Oh, yeah. do I? Yes. So back then, I think I was working on the Hill still. And I wasn't making a ton of money. So I was solely supporting my children. I could not afford to put my kids into sports, mm-hmm. right? I tried to do one sport a year to the best of my ability, but a tax credit couldn't help me because I didn't have the upfront money. And it's really no different than what's happening in Ontario right now with the paid sick days issue. You know, it's that that inability to come up with an extra four or 500 bucks to sign your kid up for hockey and then go yeah. and buy him skates and the equipment and everything else that they need. It would have been impossible yeah. For, for me to, to, to do it with a tax credit. Because first of all, at the end of the year, I didn't pay a lot in taxes anyways, because I was a single mom with two kids. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, That's problematic with tax credits too, which is why I'm personally opposed to doing it that way is because tax credits already benefit, tax credits benefit the people who can already afford it yeah. up front. That's, it's just the way it works, right? Like it's nice to get a nice little return once a year. Where are you getting the 600 bucks to put your kid in hockey in the meantime? Where are you getting the $500 to put your, your daughter in gymnastics? Like it wasn't there. And much like, like Lisa being a single mom of three boys and just worrying about where the next meal was coming from, worrying about 
how often do I use my car so that I can sure I have gas to get to the office, <laughs> worrying about those things, daycare would have, it would have been such a reduction in the burden. It would have been such a, an opportunity to breathe. The tax credits would have done no good whatsoever. Yeah. I would have got a larger tax return that went to pay off all the debt that I accumulated, accumulated yeah. trying to keep the kids fed, right? Exactly. So, tax credits are great for people who can shell out the money up front, but for everyone else, not so much. Well, my daughter and her husband would love to have more children, but their main reason for holding off is the cost of daycare. Because, you know, I get that a lot of conservatives like to think that grandmas, you know, of which I'm proudly one, um, have all this time on their hands to come and raise their grandkids for a hundred bucks a month or, or free, right? Like, and you know, I'm, I'm busy running a business. So yeah, that's not an option for my daughter. What they need, her family needs is an option to be able to have the big family that they want. She married an Irish Catholic, you know, so they, they would have, you know, a baseball team if they could, but the concern is childcare. Yeah, there's also the fact that it makes mature women even more invisible. And that's something we're already fighting. You know, grandma will come take care of the kids. Hi, I'm a grandma. I'd like to have a life too. And I've raised my kids. I've literally spent 20, 20, 35 years raising children. And I look forward to playing with my grandkids, but I get a life too. So this idea that, well, we'll just get the older women to take care of the babies. The older women can do it. I don't live in a Hutterite colony. And that life lifespan just flashed before my eyes, Kathleen. And that was changing diapers almost from cradle to freaking grave. Yeah, which also feeds right back into this whole idea of keeping women in the home, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Keeping us caregivers and providers uh, doing all the emotional labor pretty much cradle to grave. And that's, like I said, I raged reading it. I raged. Not at first. At first I was like, mm, mm. I, you know, kombucha girl, the kombucha girl meme where she drinks the kombucha and then she's like, mm, mm, mm. I was doing a lot of that. <laughs> Making a lot of faces. And then I just raged. So is there an actual conservative feminism? Because what, what we found, I mean, what I've found even just trying to book guests for this show and, and the conversations that I've had in like pre-interviews and things, a lot of conservative women that we've spoken to tend to ignore that these are problems to begin with, which is, which I find difficult because apparent, because I can see them. (laughs) Yes. I realize I couldn't see them before. I thought everything was fine. Um, but the thing is, if you look, they are there. If you look at your own behavior mm-hmm. and how you're dealing with, you know, these male centric environments, you see how, how your behavior is modified by that. I was at the UCP's inaugural convention and Heather Forsyth and Rana Ambrose uh, did a, a part of the introduction. And is that when Heather said feminism is a four letter word? Yeah. Uh, and you know, I like Heather. I like socialist. Heather. <laughs> and Heather and I get along 
quite fine. And she served this province as an MLA Mm -hmm. for a lot of years. I think she's a a fantastic human being, but wow, do we not agree on that? Yeah. And, and this was like, this was, again, it wasn't, um, I hadn't made it to the headspace I am now, but even I knew that that kind of rang slightly untrue because Mm -hmm. Like, I know that even though my mom did the work that she did, she faced barriers constantly it just from, from customers, from her boss, from her coworkers. And she would tell me about this, which is why I was like, I don't ever want to do something like that because it sounded hellish. Just at the constant amount of stress on her in that role, I thought, ew, I would never do that because why would someone put themselves through that? Well, you know, so that the next one, so the next woman who decides that she would like to be a heavy duty partsman, maybe has a coworker at that front counter who's also a woman too. Maybe she's got a boss who's a woman. Like, I, I get it. Uh, I, I didn't then. So here's a question. How much do we think um, this this opposition to feminism amongst some conservative demographics is actually about ideology instead of geography. My impression living in Alberta, where we have, you know, a couple major urban centers, and then the rest of it is a lot of small town living, is that the and these are women we're trying to reach. These are women Deirdre and I are trying to invite into the conversation time and time <laughs> again because I don't think there's enough out there for small town women. I don't think there's enough for for rural women to identify with. And if we can reach them, we can make change. So how much of it is really geographically based instead of ideologically based, do we think? Lisa, what do you think? What have you seen? Lisa Young. I mean, yeah, I think um, I think there's geography to it, but I, I do think there's ideology as well. And, you know, one of the things about Alberta in particular, and it's not unique to Alberta. There's there's parts of B.C. where this is also true. There's parts of Ontario as well. And, you know, the other prairie provinces. But that's social conservatism. And it's it's grounded in tight knit communities where religion is important and religion has messages about the appropriate role of women. And I think that, you know, certainly I don't think that all the UCP caucus would agree with uh, the socially conservative messages, but they know that this is an important base for their party. The federal party knows that this is an important base for the party, right? Think about who got out and voted in in the uh, leadership uh, campaign, right? So social conservatism on a set of issues plays out. And so when you start talking about something like universal daycare, that is anathema to social conservatives. They want to see you know, women in traditional roles and the availability of $10 a day daycare draws women out of those roles. So I don't think it's just urban rural. I I think a lot of it is really grounded in sort of tight knit religious communities. I I totally agree with that. So I come from Mennonites on both sides of my family. So you can say I I rebelled and became a progressive. Um, But they don't contemplate feminism because the religion comes first. 
right? And the religion is very clear to them in terms of what women's roles and men, men's roles are. And they are the traditional uh, normative roles that we've assigned to men and women. And it, and I just don't subscribe to that. And I think, honestly, I think at this point that they, they tolerate me because they know that I'm not going to change. Um, like it's a little late guys. Uh, but I think, I think there's truth to that. I think so much of this is grounded in religion and what, how people are raised, you know, and even, you know, so my own son and I were having a discussion the other day and my kids were raised without religion. Um, they were taught all of it and then they could pick. That was my basic philosophy on that as they grew up. And my son, who's now 25 and extremely progressive on gender issues, you know, he actually said to me the other day that he didn't realize the full extent of inequality uh, for, for women because he was raised not seeing it. So he was raised in a household where we talked about sex from a very early age. We talked about consent before it was called consent. So he grew up with a, with a mother and an older sister. And that was just merely how he believed the world to be without understanding that there was still so much work to be done. And now he sees it himself. And yeah, you know, he's now this really great feminist ally. And I think that's part of it too. You know, we talked earlier about that incremental change. You know, how fast or how slow this goes is really going to be about how willing we are to disrupt the system. I think Gen Z is very willing to disrupt it though. So I hold Me out too. hope for them. <laughs> you know, as, as the proud parent of a, a non-binary Gen Z teen. Zed. Hmm? Zed. <laughs> it's Gen Z, Zed. Yes. <laughs> she gets upset when I call it Zed. You get upset when I call it Z. I can't win, Deirdre. As, as the parent of a non-binary Gen Zed teen. How's that better? You happy now, Deirdre? Yes. Uh, I, I see how she and her peers just aren't having our shit. Mm-hmm. Like they're just not having it and they're not waiting around for change. I think we've seen a lot of that with uh, youth activists in the United States, especially after um, the school shootings. We've seen these kids come forward and say, we. Yeah we're tired of waiting for you to pass the torch to us. So we're ripping it out of your hands and we're running right past you. And I, I really think that uh, where, where millennials may have started the true revolution, I think Gen Z is going to finish it. And I look forward to it. Yeah. Well, and we've, I I feel like we've been waiting as, as that Gen X, we were this tiny little generation we, we didn't have the numbers. We did yeah. not have the numbers to stand up to, to the, the boomers. And well, we were also kind of worried nuclear bombs were going to drop on our heads, Deirdre. Well, we had other things going on. We did. You know? We had ozone layer problems and the like, cold yeah, war. Like, well, there, were, there was some major shit. There were some much music <laughs> stuff happened in the eighties, <laughs> but we had, I, we, I just always saw us as being, ineffectual at being able to create change in the same way that the boomers had done in the same way that you looked back on all of these other generations that really upended things. And then with us, 
it was just like miles and miles of boomers. Well, we were the first generation that were really latchkey kids. We were the first generation that saw our mothers go out into the workforce, workforce, right? We were the first generation to spend that much time alone. (laughs) So I'm not surprised we didn't do a hell of a lot. We smoked a lot of dope in people's basements. We smoked a lot of dope. We wore safety pins in new and creative ways. (laughs) We had stuff going on. Oh, we did. And, you know, it's interesting when I think back of it. So I graduated high school in 1987, which seems like a lifetime ago. But I remember, you know, senior year, getting ready for prom. My boyfriend uh, didn't go to high school. He was a bit older than I was. And so the principal had implemented a rule that, uh, number one, you couldn't bring a, a date that didn't go to the school. And number two, you weren't allowed to go stag. So what, what they the did. Yes. That, oh, so that everyone that had a date? Young women could not go alone. So our, because our plan had been, our, my, my group, we were just going to rent our own damn limo and hop in and have fun with each other. And they told us that we couldn't do that. And they actually went as far as pulled names out of hats oh, to match Lord. us up with people. And I'll never forget. And I, I said, no way, not a chance. And the principal phoned my mother and to her credit, so my mother's in her 70s now, and to her credit, she backed me up. She had said, if my daughter wants to go stag to the prom, what's your problem? This, yeah. this is how it's going to work. And that's but the 80s. That, that was, right? That wasn't <laughs> that long ago that we were still stuck <laughs> learning all these traditional, like, do you remember Home Act? We all yeah. had learned oh, yeah. how to change baby's diapers before we were 12 years old. Yeah, carried an egg around our high school because, you know, if you broke the egg, maybe you shouldn't have children. (laughs) Took sewing class. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Clothing, clothing, clothing. We even had those- Typing. Typing class. Special I refused to take typing because the only people who who needed to learn to type were were clearly going to be secretaries. Secretaries, yeah. And so I graduate from high school and wouldn't you know, you know, the personal computer is invented and I had to teach myself how to type. <laughs> Did you use games? Cause that's what, that's what finally got me was, was, was just the uh, word games that I had to race against other people to get the words. And oh, I, I, that's quick. I spent 15 DOS. years working yeah. for lawyers and I swear to God, not a damn one of them could type. <laughs> I, <laughs> not a one of them. And when you ask them why, they'll say, because in school, typing was for the chicks. Yeah. Mm. Chicks went to typing class. And I look back on it now, my typing class in high school, all women. Well, and it's interesting. So while our generation may not have taken to the streets, I think outside of our, our mothers, who really only worked for, what, what, did, what did they used to call it? Pin money. Pin money. Oh, right? Yeah. Pin money. God, I'm old. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so their career was never taken seriously because, you know, everyone knew that if there was a problem in the family, the woman had to stop working and come and take care of everybody. So we're that, that first generation of women that really set out to chart our own career path, you know. And, you know, I didn't go to university straight out of high school because everyone had said there won't be any jobs because the boomers are never going to retire. 
Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and I majored, We're seeing it, yep. And I majored in sociology, so I was really unqualified for nothing except Starbucks and Parliament Hill. <laughs> You know, so we we may not have been loud about it, but we started to do the work. And I think now where we're seeing a lot of change, and my favorite quote is from Gloria Steinem, and it's the only group that grows more radical with age is women. It's so true. Right? And I totally believe that because it's not now enough for us to go and advocate for ourselves to get equality we're looking out for everyone else too. You know, my feminism is intersectional. This isn't just about me and I recognize my privilege. I know that despite the fact that I am still behind men, I am ahead of black and indigenous and women of color and we have to help them too. Like we have an obligation and I think that this is where the women of Gen X are really going to make big changes. Mm-hmm. 